Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank podcast mr broomfield it's a pleasure to have you on the show can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening yeah my name is dale Brumfield. i'm a journalist and author and a criminal justice reform advocate living just uh in central virginia and uh you wrote a couple of books and i came across one that was about independent news sources strictly in like it's dc and virginia and i'm curious to how'd you get across writing something like this well um, I'm actually the author of 12 books. I had written one right before that called Richmond Independent Press. Um, I was actually a publisher of an alternative uh, monthly magazine in Richmond from 1981 to 1987. And that experience in working with the uh, alternative press and all of the travails and problems and issues that come along and rewards that, that come along with being in with a, an alternative paper like that led me to look back into Richmond and what Richmond's history was with the alternative press. Uh, in Richmond, we only had two newspapers for years and years, the Times-Dispatch and the News Leader. And both of them, they were pro-segregation for many years. They did not speak at all to the, the young people. And so these little newspapers started springing up in Richmond in the mid-late 1960s. And that history was fascinating. So I wrote a book about the history of that. Uh, these, these alternative newspapers, uh, these, some comic journals. Uh, just all kinds of things that ran the gamut that people were were putting together with their own initiative and their own money simply because they had something to say. Okay, so once that book came out, I approached the publisher, History Press, and said, you know, there's a lot of other papers in D.C. and Virginia that I think people would like to read about as well, as well as Richmond. Well, they were all over it because the Richmond book got nominated for a literary award at the Library of Virginia. So they were all over expanding uh a book on the alternative press. So I had the opportunity to write about the alternative press in the whole rest of the state of Virginia and in Washington, DC. And so that's how that book came together. And that was just fascinating research, uh, libraries to just research these sometimes one page newsletters that these organizations did just because they had something to say uh, to reflect the turmoil and the problems of the 60s. So that's kind of how the book came about then. Now, was this like well-known? Were people able to easily find these types of – whenever I hear this word underground, I think you have to be like an exclusive member to get any information on any of these sources. But, I mean, if you look at the history books, they talk about protests. They talk about riots on times as well too. But you never hear this anti – like you hear about anti-Vietnam. But then I've known everything from the other side of the government infiltrating and trying their best to make sure people weren't protesting against the Vietnam War. So I'm just curious what – when we talk about alternative media, what your definition of that is, and then what what'd you come across in some of these news articles? Well, the, the good thing, the thing about the alternative media, especially the, the hardcore underground press uh, of the 1960s and early 70s, and there are distinctions to be made because to me, alternative media and underground press are two vastly distinct entities because the, the, the press that we recognize as the underground press were all united against the Vietnam War. That was the unifying factor with what we consider the underground press. 
and they utilized what I call participatory non-objective journalism. Uh, they were very upfront in these magazines saying, we are not objective. We are in the middle of this. Uh, we are reporting what we see and what we experience in the middle of these things. A perfect example of that is the uh, March on the Pentagon in 1967. Um, there was a group of people who, you know, they, they surrounded the Pentagon, formed a circle around it, and um, they were confronted by police, of course. And so when that happened, these people who wrote about it were on the inside. They were there participating in that uh, protest, and they in turn wrote about it. And so we get a better picture of what was going on inside of the, of the protest, and not just from reporters who were outside looking in, like maybe the Washington Post or the Washington Times or some other papers at the time. We were getting a real clear look at what was really happening on the inside. So that was fascinating to see what we called to get this non-objective reporting. And, and by being upfront about it, we, we know right away uh, what, what they're doing, what they're saying. Uh, so the alternative press though, it takes on a more broad uh, definition of papers who maybe were not just unified against the war. They may have been anti-war, but they were, they were covering more of other things, arts, culture, things like that around the town. But the pure the pure underground press was solely united against the Vietnam War and the new left and were with the new left student movement. They were more enmeshed in that counterculture. So there's a, a real distinction to be made between these two uh, papers, two, two types of papers. Um, so these papers are available now. Now, when I first started researching them in 2012, they weren't very available, um, but they are more available now. There's a website called Voices of the Underground I think it's the name of it, a gentleman named Ken Waxberger put this together where many of the underground papers from all over the country are now available as searchable, downloadable PDFs. Uh, so that's uh, a wonderful development. I helped Ken a little bit with some of the Virginia papers for that collection. Uh, so they're more available now. And they, uh, anyone who's interested in the news media from the 60s and 70s and the news coverage of the time should take a minute to look at some of these papers, uh, whether on the website. <clears throat> I think there's a university, I think University of Michigan has, has a good collection on their library website. Uh, you can look them up and find them. And um, to get a more, a more inside look at what was happening at the time, it, it's really to get a more overall bigger picture than what the news uh, mainstream media was reporting. Was there anything that was being covered by the underground press that was being left out in the main news that obviously people could make distinctions of? Like, I have to think about like, when did the creation of the underground press first start? Like that involvement of that? Cause everything I, that I see comes against anti-war gets labeled as communist. And then it doesn't look too pretty after that. <laughs> One thing about the underground press that <clears throat> it made pretty dramatic changes. Uh, some of the earliest papers became around early 1967, and they were more reflective of the hippie flower child era. You know, the Woodstock, that sort of thing, they were much more reflective. They weren't radical, so to speak. They were more just reflecting drug culture, uh, marijuana, LSD, um, maybe some low-grade protests about the war that were going on in their communities, um, but they were more about just espousing a lifestyle. Uh, but two years later, that dramatically changed. You can look at a paper from 1967, another one from 1969. They are dramatically different in that they made that giant switch. I think the Tet Offensives of 1968 in Vietnam were kind of a turning point 
for the underground press. And they got away from that hippie, uh, hippie dippy mentality is what they call it, and got more into action. And violence became a bigger part. You know, the weathermen um, emerged from this and some other, and they were calling for uh, bombing and calling for violence to get their ends because they saw that just standing around and publishing and writing about it wasn't getting anything done. So things turned quite violent by 1969, and they would start calling for outward uh, a- activities that were could you know take take a chance, go to jail, go to prison, get get arrested by the cops. That was the whole point. That was what they wanted by then. So there was a, a marked difference in a very short period of time from 1967 to 1969, and then we get into 70 and 71. I consider 70 and 71 part of the 60s. Uh, Is that cousin Nixon? That was, yes, yeah, still with Nixon. Um, and so and so these things, the, the escalations in Vietnam were still going on, and the radicalism was just getting worse and worse. In the night, in the early, in 70 and 71, there were a, a dozens and dozens of bomb threats a week uh, in many cities, including Washington, D.C. Uh, Washington, D.C. was uh, just basically under siege from 1968 till 1970 after the assassination of Martin Luther King. We're saying there were a thousand buildings set on fire uh, in 1968 after the assassination of King. And so, you know, there were tanks in the streets. There were machine gun nests set up on the state cap on the Capitol steps. The the national Capitol steps had machine gun nests set on them. So it was a war zone in D.C. for over a year uh, going into 1970. So this was a very dangerous and very uh, heated period in American history. You know, we look at January 6th, and as bad as it was, uh, we had January, almost January 6th level uh, issues going on. No, no one trying to break into the Capitol. People tried to break into the Pentagon, of course, in that time. But <clears throat> this was going on over an extended period back in those days. And, and this didn't really come to a stop until the draft ended. And, and when the draft ended, that took the air out of the protest movement, out of the new left counterculture, and out of the underground press. So 70 and 71 were crucial as they were part of the 60s as well. That was a 12-year decade, I call it. Uh, so a uh, very short period of time, uh, like a match head. It flared very brightly, and then it went out just as quickly. Why were they uh, like just using it like the weather underground? Why was there so much... I guess threat domestically that was going on. It seems like I mean, where they they were activating against the Vietnam War, they were trying to protest it, but it was their message not getting heard. Is that why they became violent? I mean, when did the exactly okay? When did the officials become I guess aware of this underground media, and when did it start to become a problem? I know Nixon's whole war on drugs and kind of war on you know all these uh, terrorists, what they would deem terrorists, domestic terrorists, and it's just like that time is just so damn confusing. It's absolutely confusing, and uh, you need a couple of days to actually talk about it, to unravel all of it. The FBI became very aware of the underground press in 1968 uh, into 69, and in in my book, Independent Press in D.C. and Virginia, I recount a fascinating story that uh, in September of 1969, on the campus of American University in Washington, D.C., this underground paper showed up. Uh, nobody knew where it came from or who published it. It was called The Rational Observer. And it was an underground paper that looked like it had been written by your dad, right? It was full of short stories. It was just a mimeograph sheet front and back about, I don't know, six pages long. And it said things like, 
you know, it was like admonishments to, to be on your best behavior while in college. You know, it was like, don't do anything now that you might regret later. Remember, employers are watching. And it was like introducing this mo moderate voice uh, to the activism that was occurring on the campus of American University at the time. And so uh, it, all these ham-handed, boneheaded stories were showing up in this paper. And it turns out that, that paper had been published by the FBI. It was a clandestine publication of the FBI. Through a Freedom of Information Act request, I got all of the uh, documentation leading up to the publication of the Rational Observer, I even found the name of the agents who wrote the thing. And so they had done this to counter the radical voices that were right in their own backyard, right there in Washington, D.C. So by doing this, they were hoping to tamp down this activism. And they did the same thing out in um, Illinois. Uh, they did a paper called the Armageddon News uh, that was a fake underground paper that basically did the same thing. It told students that, you know, employers are watching, your parents are watching, we know what's going on, you, know, you better behave yourself. And they attempted to do one in Texas called the Longhorn Tale. Uh, unfortunately, that one did never got off the ground for a, for a number of reasons, a number of pretty good reasons, probably. Uh, so the FBI was very concerned about the underground press and very concerned about this, these radical influences and these messages, these anti-war, new left counterculture uh, messages that were being sent. Uh, so yes, there was blowback and there was uh, uh, a lot of attention being paid uh, to it. Now, were people aware at the time that these magazines were obviously something else going on, like it was government control? Like, I mean, when did it, when did it slowly start to end? Like, when did this slowly start to phase out? Was that the, at the end of the Vietnam War? Or was that after J. Edgar Hoover uh, passed away and his administration had kind of changed uh, to a different director? Because J. Edgar Hoover's name is attached to the most crazy things I've ever heard, like FBI invasion into Hollywood and just so much where I'm like, did anything change after he passed? When did this, you know, underground news start? coming a little, I guess a little bit more above surface. Cause I mean, there's fair play for Cuba committee. There was fair play for Vietnam. There was fair play magazines all over the place at all these institutions and institutions were training ground for like CIA and FBI. Sometimes they were infiltrating them a little bit and spying on some of the people there. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the CIA in particular had a, had an insidious program called operation chaos and that C H A O S it didn't stand for anything. It was just chaos. And the whole point of Operation Chaos was to look for uh, foreign involvement and foreign funding of the new left student movement, because Lyndon Johnson and later Richard Nixon were convinced that this new left student movement, which was growing by leaps and bounds in the late 60s, there's no way it can be funded internally because the, these, these raggedy hippies don't have any money. There's no way. They can be, you know, creating like the May Day protests in D.C. where thousands of kids showed up. Uh, all these protests that were happening around the country. No way they could be doing that. So the CIA, in violation of their charter, started investigating domestic disturbances under the auspices of foreign involvement paying for it you say that and then i had an espionage guy on my show nigel west and he was like that's a myth and i was like first of all i've talked to plenty of people on the kennedy assassination and oswald's name comes up a lot with these communist magazines and things of that sort but i tom o'neill's book um about the chaos and the manson murders and all that as well too i mean you can call it a conspiracy, but when you have documentation showing that the FBI was infiltrating institutions and was trying to get people to pick up these magazines so they can call them communists and grab them, I mean, that's 
the infiltrations of the communes of D.C. were in particular uh, the Quicksilver Commune and the Washington Free Press uh, all had communal. There were communal papers being published right there. Uh, and the infiltration got so bad. I mean, I talked to people. Who, I, I interviewed people for my book. Uh, who who worked, who lived in these communes. And they said, you know, if there was 18 people living in the commune, you could safely assume that six of them were probably infiltrators from either the FBI or the CIA. Uh, one guy in particular uh, enmeshed himself into the Quicksilver commune uh, in the late 60s. His name was Sal Ferreira. And Sal had all this high-tech equipment and good cameras. And he said, well, it was a trust fund. It was left to me uh, in a will and it's all mine. And nobody paid, gave it a second thought. Turned out Sal was a plant from the CIA. And he, he lived in that commune for over a year. He was good friends with a guy that I interviewed. He had no idea Sal was a, an informant for the CIA. So uh, they talked about uh, women who would show up, young women who would just show up at the commune and say, I'm a runaway. I, I need a place to crash. You know, I want to stay here. They let them come in and stay. I mean, after all, it's a commune. Come on in. Everybody's welcome. She's an infiltrator. Uh, the guy had, uh, she told my friend that I interviewed that she had to deliver a package to be mailed to the post office in downtown DC. Well, it was well known that the upstairs offices of the post office had FBI, were FBI offices with no names on the doors. And when this guy saw her go upstairs to deliver a package, he said, she's an informant. And so she got run out of the commune after that. So they were infiltrating these things constantly, uh, much more successfully than you might think, uh, than, than anybody might realize. Uh, so it, it was happening. It was both the CIA and the FBI both doing it. In fact, the FBI opened a fake bookstore in downtown D.C. called the Red House, I think was the name of it. And the whole purpose of the Red House was to get these underground papers to come to them to be distribution points. And so they brought in all these papers and they got some books and they set up the Red House. And it was done so well that the uh, Washington, D.C. police actually intercepted their mail, not knowing it was an FBI setup. Uh, so we, we had right hand not seeing what the left hand was doing. It was all it was just confusion from the start. Nobody knew anything, but everybody was trying to do everything. So it, it was a mess. It just got really complicated. It's like bait on a hook. It's literally what you just described to me. I just pictured fishing and putting a worm on a hook and trying. I mean, they did. They went to such extents. Like, I'm surprised what we found out in Watergate when William Colby exposed a lot of things about the Phoenix program and so much that we started realizing what the government was doing. And I mean, when you look at the examples like the history books would say, like whether underground using explosive acts and they're kind of labeled as a terrorist organization then it gives them the FBI and the CIA full responsibility to go want to find these people and hunt them down. But then you also got to look at, they weren't just stopping there. They were going to anybody that even had a note of communism on them. I mean, J Edgar Hoover's whole administration into Hollywood, there's files on Frank Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe, so many people where it's like, if this person even has notes of communists, they're not going to be in a movie. Look what the FBI did to Gene Seberg. I mean, they basically ruined her life. Uh, it, it's a fascinating story. Uh, so if you get a chance, Google the FBI versus Gene Seberg. Uh, it, it was, it's a disaster of a story. I wrote a story about it. It's on my Medium page. Uh, it was a disaster what they did. But, you know, they, they didn't stop. They went to um, back in, in the late 60s, coffee shops became very popular with the counterculture movement. They opened a couple in D.C. They opened one called OM or OM uh, in Texas. 
And the, the, the FBI knew these coffee shops are bad deals, man. There's people gathering. They're talking about things. Uh, they're playing. They're hot hatching plots there. So they made concerted efforts to find out the names of the students and young people who are running these coffee shops and sending letters to their parents telling them, we, your child is involved with marijuana use and, and, and LSD use at this, at this coffee shop. You better do something. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden they had to, um, they had, they closed the coffee shop. I mean, it was a constant, it was this constant level of harassment, uh, going on and using parents in whatever way they could to put an end to it. Now to, to understand the times a little bit better, did you try looking at both perspectives of the people that were, you know, part of the, the underground and then also looking at the perspectives of the government? Cause I've talked to both sides on my show. I think this is, I think I would like government transparency on a lot of this stuff. I think it's crazy. A lot of the stuff that's going on, I think people should know about it. I think they need, people need to have a voice to talk about these, I would say, rights violations but then you look at like people that talk about the government and they go well they were looking at like this thing is going to be a threat to our nation i'm like yeah but you can't justify every single thing nixon did at all there's a lot of stuff that was just way out of control even i think hoover at one point said no to nixon because he just wasn't liking what nixon was wanting oh there were there was it, it was such a mess because they had the cia actually had a guy who was investigating uh, the new left student movement, and he was investiga investigating H.R. Haldeman in, inside the White House. So it, it, it's, it, it's, it's like a Keystone Cops comedy. If, if it would be a Keystone Cops if it weren't so terrifying. Um, but I had, I had reached out to a few people. It's hard to find anyone who was in law enforcement or in government uh, at the time who was kind of involved in the niche uh, activities that I was researching at the time. Um, I tried to hunt down the uh, FBI agents who had created the Rational Observer, and I couldn't find them. And I talked to a couple of people who were peripherally, peripherally involved, um, but they didn't have much to say. And quite frankly, I knew more about the topic than they did. And I found that to be the case on both sides. Uh, I interviewed one gentleman who had been intimately involved with the creation of the Washington Free Press in 1967, and I knew more about the paper than he did. Uh, he just simply he said, I just don't remember that. You'll have to you'll have to tell me what was what about what that was about. So I ran into that quite a bit. So, no, I did not have much luck uh, tracking down individuals involved on the right side. Um, finding people on the left side was much more much, much easier. And quite frankly, their stories were far more interesting. When it comes to the right side, when it comes to the government, did you find um, when any of these people you interviewed, did you feel like they just weren't telling you because they were waiting for you to ask like the specific questions to it? Or did you feel like they just were clueless? I feel like a lot of people back then were just following orders because they were told to. Yeah, I, I got that. I got both of those impressions. It kind of just depended on who I was talking to. If I was talking to someone who had actually been a leader uh, and, and I, I talked to a lot of people who, who were leaders and they are much more clear and were much more open about what they were doing and what they wanted. Uh, the foot soldiers that I, that I talked to, like the, the people who just showed up at the commune who wanted to work on the paper and be a part of it, live the lifestyle. They were the ones that I found that just needed to be prodded a little more and had, had the stories extracted, uh, out because they say, I, I don't think they really remembered much. They said, yeah, I was a period of my type period of my life i was 16 years old i was a runaway what did i know uh you know so uh but the leadership was much more much more open and much more willing to talk freely about what they were doing and very honestly some of them said you know we were we got to the point where we weren't being heard and so yes we did start espousing violence 
And uh, we said, this is the only way we're going to get, we got to get Richard Nixon and the government to wake up and listen to us. When they espoused violence, did any of the main news sources decide like to publish anything about them or did they keep it like silent, like it was happening, but nobody was talking about it? Well, most 90% of the violence was just talked about and not actually committed. Um, the protests, like the May Day protest in D.C., was very well covered by the mainstream media, although it's those delicious details that you get from those who are involved. Like I, I talked to one guy who drove a dump truck to D.C. on the day of the uh, May Day uh, demonstration, and he just stopped at the bridge. I forget which bridge. I think it was the Key Bridge. Uh, going into Roslyn and dumped uh, his entire load of sand in the middle of the road and then drove off. And that tied up traffic for hours uh, while they had to clear, try to clear that load of sand out of the road. Uh, thing, little things, details like that generally were not covered. The mainstream tended to be more uh, all-encompassing, um, but, but it was the underground press where you started finding these really good nuggets of individuals and the individual things that they did just to uh, block traffic or tie things up or just create create a general mess. Uh, so that was that's the, the beauty of the underground press where you get those details of these, once again, that participatory non-objective journalism where people are telling you exactly what they did uh, and to further the cause uh, on their own right. How big of an impact did it have on social change? I mean, not too long later, I'm pretty sure you have women equality as well, too. And a lot of start, things start moving forward in the right direction, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there were a lot of underground papers who were more more of a niche. Uh, I wrote about one called Off Our Backs. Uh, it's a very little known publication, but more people need to know about it because it was the very first women's liberation uh, alternative or underground newspaper that came out. And it was all about women's rights and, and the growing uh, uh, women's movement, which fractured horribly, by the way. You know, the early days of women's liberation, it fractured terribly uh, when uh, the women split and the ones who were off our backs uh, were continuing. But a, a large group of mostly lesbian women split off and said, you know what, we cannot be involved with women's liberation if you're still going to be beholden to men. So they split off and created their own. Uh, branch. And I write about one particular group called the Furies in my book. And this is an absolutely fascinating uh, niche of women. And I had the pleasure of, in, of uh, interviewing one of them, Joan E. Byron, who is now a well-known photographer. Uh, she was a part, along with Arthur Rita Mae Brown, was also a part of the Furies. And the Furies was a group of about 12 or 15 women starting out uh, in Washington, D.C., who was going to create a society completely devoid of heterosexual or male influence. It was only going to be women for women about women. And it turned out to be a self-defeating uh, prophecy because uh, they they kind of cut their own throats, so to speak, because it, it was a true collective. Uh, one of them, for example, could not tell another one, hey, it's your night to do the dishes because that would show classism. Right. So nobody could tell each other what to do. Nobody could. Uh, the, everybody was just free to act on their own. So as a result, nothing got done. Uh, one of the women who was a member of the Furies had a young son and they they told her she could not stay there with that young son because once again, no male influence can be in this organization at all. Uh, so she had to leave. And then Rita Mae Brown was kicked out because she 
did something that was considered classist. And then everybody started getting kicked out. And after about a year or so, the Furies Collective was down to about two people, two or three people. So they couldn't attract new people because nobody could live up to their stringent standards. And so that faction kind of died too. Doesn't that sound more classist if you're kicking so many people out on dumb things? That's that was a real problem. Yes, that's a real problem. <laughs> and, and that was part of the hypocrisy that they discovered that you know what this this is not working because we're kicking people out for very reasons that we're decrying them for so no we we this this is not working and it became pretty apparent but they did publish a really good underground paper called the furies uh for about a year uh, it came out and it was quite good but meanwhile on the other side of the women's liberation front off our backs morphed and so, and then ms magazine came after that uh, so they had their niche. This, this was a strictly a women's liberation, and a lot of good things came out of that. They were able to carry forward and to, you know, create positive change. Uh, the paper, The Gay Blade, started up in Washington, D.C., the first uh, homosexual uh, male publication, and uh, it faced a lot of blowback. But it is still around today as the Washington Blade. You know, it's, it's survived over 50 years, almost 60 years now. Uh, from its humble beginnings. Uh, so, you know, many of these papers went on to, uh, you know, carry their torch forward and to enact really positive change, particularly the gay publications. So uh, it, it kind of just depends on what their niche was and what their cause was. Meanwhile, many of the anti-war publications, the, the main uh, batch of underground papers in the entire country, when Nixon ended the draft in 72, then when they pulled out of Vietnam completely in 74, that just took all the air out of the, out of the uh, anti-war movement and most publications died. A few of them were able to morph into alternative weeklies that kind of survive today. We see, uh, I think City Paper was a good example. Uh, it survived in several cities uh, well up into the 90s and early 2000s if there aren't some still around. Uh, so it just depends on what what their coverage was and what they were looking to do. Uh, this might be a question you might have an answer for, but it's more about speculation probably. But I wonder if the government ever came across or at least read a couple of these magazines or had someone appointed to read any of these magazines and at least try and sort through what these people were talking about. I mean, at any point as president, I doubt Nixon would have done any reading on it, but at any point you could have picked up one of these and looked at any of the points or any of the things that they addressed. I'm sure they might've used it to counter some of the points that they were making in their magazine, but at any time you could have just thought critically about like, huh, they make a good point about not going into war anymore. We have spent a lot of money and a lot of lives have been lost. I mean, there was just simple stuff where if they read it, where it made me think, did they just hear something about it? I mean, it was probably getting rumored that it was this communist newspaper. And back then, like communism being gay. I mean, those are things Hoover took basically took out when he was director of FBI. I mean, he was looking specifically for that to blacklist those people. So the fact that the, the gay publications were able to even make it through that, I would think that they would have been infiltrated and just an all out attack on them. Yeah, but uh, they managed to stay hidden. Uh, I don't know how they did. Uh, in fact, the Gay Blade had a female editor and a female publisher for a while, and that kind of took attention away uh, from them. But one thing that the FBI did, uh, and the Washington police, and I'm sure this happened in other cities too, is they used obscenity as their rationale. 
for going in and breaking up the publication, seizing papers, and ransacking offices. And this happened at the Free Press. It happened at Quicksilver. It happened at Off Our Backs. Uh, they would come in the office in the morning and see that their offices had been ransacked, but they found their, their typewriters, their publishing equipment, their Xerox machine, all that was intact, but they'd stolen files. Uh, only files had been stolen. So that led them to believe that said this was an FBI job. Um, and frequently we, there were trials, many trials. I write about them in my book of how uh, these individuals were busted on street corners, like somebody selling the Quicksilver Times and it had a Robert Crumb cartoon and that the FBI suddenly decided was obscene. Well, that gave, that gave them an excuse to arrest that seller, that vendor and haul him down and, and put him to trial for peddling obscenity. Bookstore owners uh, were getting busted for peddling obscenity uh, by carrying these papers that might have a, a picture on the cover that they found offensive or a cartoon or a story. And they would use that rationale to seize all their bundles of papers and take them to court. None of these cases won, none of them. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the definition of obscenity was so broad that they, none of the judges, some of went to the Supreme Court. Harry Blackman said that R. Crumb cartoon simply did not match the, the definition of obscenity, and they threw the case out. So they were trying to shut them down. They were making real efforts and using the obscenity angle to do it. Uh, and they, they succeeded, unfortunately, and many times in shutting the paper down, but they never won a court case on those obscenity charges. So they were kind of hollow victories in that respect. Many times the paper had already gone out of business by the time the court uh, case was finally decided. Uh, so they were, they were active efforts to shut these people down and they weren't going after them because of their anti-war. Uh, they were going after them for uh, obscenity because they felt that a more salient way to try to put these papers out of business. When you interviewed any of these people, did you ask them about like, did, their, did, did they get discouraged? Did they just want to give up at any point? I mean, after a while, it's got to seem like you're shouting into a void in a sense. I mean, if there's this powerful force out there that can literally squash you in an instant on an aspect of taking you off the radar. I mean, I give all these people so much credit for doing what they were doing and lasting as long as they did as well, too, and the amazing things that they could accomplish. The, they were they were pretty remarkable at the fact that they, in a way, they needed to keep publishing because their their magazine, especially in the communes, uh, was was their income source. Uh, you know, they needed money coming in, so the magazine was the way they could do that. So they were incentivized to keep publishing that way. But it seemed like every bust, every time the hammer came down on them, just angered them and motivated them enough to just keep moving, find another way to do it. Uh, uh, Quicksilver Times in D.C., uh, their, their printer finally said, look, we're not going to publish you anymore because you're, you have uh, articles in your paper that our print press staff finds offensive. So they lose their printer. So what do they do? They have to carry the paper all the way to New York or New Jersey. I think they went to New Jersey. So somebody had to drive the grid sheets once they were pasted up all the way to New Jersey to get them printed then bring them all the way back for distribution. Um, the, I think the Furies ran into the same problem. No printer in D.C. would touch them. So they had to ship their, their flats all the way down to Georgia to get them printed. And come, but, but they kept doing it. You know, they, they just said, you know what, this is too important. What we're doing is too important. Uh, yeah, this is a bump on the road. It's an inconvenience, but it's something we've got to learn to put up with. Uh, so many papers found this to be a problem, but they just were able to keep publishing, partly out of necessity, partly because they were motivated and angered enough to keep going. 
it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. Believe me, after being in a paper that was facing the financial crunch, uh, that, that's a pretty scary position to be in. But uh, and I empathize with them and tremendously, but they, they just kept going. So was, uh, hats off to those people for what for keeping going the way they did. And I have to think with even traveling to New Jersey or uh, just a different place to go get your uh, papers printed, that message that you're kind of advocating for and printing is now exceeding out of where you're originally were focused. It's now going to other places, these places you have to print, right? They had to spread their message out a little bit farther than that as well, too. I didn't find any evidence that they were distributing their papers in these places. I thought they were, I got the impression they were merely driving the grid sheets up there, got the papers printed, then brought the bundles back to DC. Uh, So I don't think there was an active effort to spread their message in other cities. Um, I I didn't see any, any evidence of that. And I didn't talk to anyone who uh, specifically mentioned doing that. Uh, So for whatever reason, I, the, the papers are pretty niche products in their own communities. So maybe they felt like that that message just wouldn't fly or maybe there's a paper up up in New Jersey who was already covering that. So they didn't have an, see a need to distribute up there. But I, I saw no evidence of distribution in these other places. How difficult was it for you to get this from like the Freedom of Information Act? Oh, it took 16 attempts. 16? To get the rational observer. 16 attempts, yeah. Why and to so keep many? narrowing down. It took 16 attempts in about two years. Um, <clears throat> I had to keep narrowing down the criteria. I kept getting a message that there's nothing that matches your criteria. And I, not knowing what I was looking for, no one was even convinced that the Rational Observer actually existed because no one had ever seen it. Actually, they had heard about it, and it got mentioned in a court case in D.C., but no one had ever seen a copy of the Rational Observer. So I, I was kind of flying in the dark on what I was looking for, the dates. I wasn't sure of the date. I wasn't sure, uh, you know, of anything. So I just kept sending, kept sending, kept sending. Finally, one day I got a link to a PDF archive that had almost 4,000 documents in it. And I downloaded every last one of them. Uh, and inside, of course, there was all kinds of stuff. There was, uh, this was a new left Cointel Pro. You know, the FBI ran the Cointel Pro program and this was all the rational observer was all part of cointel pro and i got four thousand documents and i had to wade through them and wade through them they were from all over the country but then in the washington field office i found this trove of documents talking about starting a paper and originally it was going to be called chavara news c-h-e-v-a-r-a chavara news uh so yeah we're not going to use that title so they changed it to something else, like working class something. No, that didn't work. They finally decided to go with Rational Observer. I don't know why. That's just the name they picked. And then they actually published it. And the first issue says number volume one, number two on it. And that was done intentionally to make people think that this was actually the second one. There's been one before. Maybe this is something we should pay attention to. You know, so it was kind of a motivating factor for people to read it at that point. So, yeah, it was fascinating that I got all these documents and all this documentation leading up to its creation. Uh, And, of course, the FBI proclaimed it to be a success with absolutely no documentation of anything. And I found a couple of American University students who were at the campus and remembered the Rational Observer. And both of them said, I remember that. I had no idea it was an FBI plant, though. (laughs) So. I guess they succeeded in that measure. Yeah. When you were finding all this out, I mean, were you shocked at all about this? I mean, we knew like there's a stereotype that goes on today, which I mean, it's true in some aspects that all the mainstream news, you can't trust it. It's like, 
Well, I mean, you get a lot from independent sources, but in a real time, especially during the 60s and 70s, that was kind of true in an aspect. I mean, there were people that were risking their lives and risking everything that they really had just to get a message out there, which shows the importance of, you know, independent news as well, too. There was there was one paper in D.C. It was one of the earliest underground papers started in late 1966, early 67. It was called Underground was the name of it. And uh, a gentleman named Tom DiBaggio was behind it. And um, I had the opportunity, unfortunately, Tom died many years ago, but I had the opportunity to interview his wife, Joyce, who was, and she had since then has passed away also. Uh, but she said, you know, Tom, he always wanted to work for a newspaper, but he, he just didn't want to be in the mainstream. He wanted to publish what he wanted to publish. And so Tom started his own paper, Underground, and it, it lasted about 25 issues out of their living room, put it together in the living room. And um, he took, Tom was different in that he took stories from all sides. He ran a pro-Vietnam piece uh, in his paper and that drew a lot of heat. And he said, look, I know you don't like it. Maybe you don't. He says, but I'm, I'm anxious and being balanced. I want more people to pick up my paper. I want more people to do this. So he saw it as a, a, an opportunity to reach out to more people. But in the end, Underground uh, turned into a very uh, left wing as it went along into 68, became a more of a left wing paper reflecting uh, the 1968 uh, new left mindset, uh, which is becoming more militant and much more counterculture and much more pulling away from that uh, pro-Vietnam sentiment. Uh, so that was very unique in that way. But these these guys just had something to say and they it wasn't out to make money. That wasn't at all what they were trying to do. They just wanted to get a point out. They wanted to get their story out and they wanted people involved uh, to bring more people into their side. And I think they were hugely successful in that way, in that short, brief run that they uh, experienced. Now, which president um, during their time in presidency had most impact on this independent news source or an also, or maybe just I would because I know Nixon had a war against Timothy Leary. He had a war against a lot of people. But I mean, Johnson was also a lot of the 60s, mostly before Nixon. So I, I'm just curious to which presidency had more impact and more effect on the independent news or was at least more aware of it. I, I think I think Nixon Nixon was aware of the underground press and Nixon okayed Operation Chaos. He okayed a lot of the FBI COINTELPRO. Uh, program, which was designed to infiltrate the new left movement. And it was all done with Nixon's blessing. So Nixon was uh, the underground press while Johnson was still president. It was still uh, mired in that kind of that flower power mindset. Although Vietnam, you know, Vietnam was Johnson's war. Uh, the, and Johnson caught a lot of heat toward right at the end of his um, administration because of the buildup in Vietnam. But really, it was Nixon, the heyday of the underground press. Uh, that 68 to 72 period was all Nixon. I mean, that was Nixon's first term. Uh, so, you know, he he was the main antagonist. And if you look at these papers, uh, Nixon was just savaged on the pages of these papers and many times rightfully so. Uh, so Vietnam may have been Johnson's war, but the underground press was Nixon's was Nixon's war, too. This is more of like pro probably a personal perspective I'd ask of yours, which is what did you think about these times? Like, I, I mean, I look at this is the first time there's ever really a battle on domestic land. And the battle happened to be between, you know, this idea of free speech, this people that are just upset about what's going on enough to make a change and at least create something to make change. And that was the first time, you know, I think Nixon 
you know, he got the full blunt of it because it was like the first time anybody was really experiencing the mass impact that he was dealing with on that aspect of things. But it was, it was such an important moment in history. It really doesn't get talked about enough, I think. Yeah, it, it um, United States was it, it, it was all it was you could call it a civil war. I mean, that's what it was coming down to. It may not, you know, it may not fit the classical definition of civil war, but the new left, the new left movement and the, the right uh, were at war during that time. And we see it now. We see things now. We say, you know, civil war is coming. But it, it was it was much more pronounced in that period. You know, I was 10 years old in 1969. So I remember picking up Life magazine and seeing the picture uh, of Columbia, the Columbia takeover, you know, when the students took over Columbia University and took over the president's house and this type of thing and, and just being mortified by it because all of a sudden I was thinking to myself, you know what? I looked at pictures of Vietnam for years in Life magazine, didn't think a thing about it. I looked at the Columbia University takeover at the age of 10 and I was mortified because that was a sign to me. This, this is not a revolution that's occurring in a rice paddy 5,000 miles away. This is occurring right here. This is in our backyard, and this was something to be very concerned about. So as a young child, this had a profound impact on me. Uh, so later on, I carried that impact forward. And so when I got a chance to both be a part of the alternative press and to chronicle the alternative and underground press in Virginia, it, it, that, this was like a, an extension of something that I experienced at a young age myself. And people need to realize, I was saying, Washington, D.C. was a war zone. When this happened, you know, there were some terrible things about the King assassination. We were talking about it earlier and how much violence erupted. Uh, I, I talked to students. There was an underground paper at Virginia Tech. OK, not exactly thought of as a hotbed of uh, 60s activism. Right. Uh, well, what triggered the new left movement at Virginia Tech was the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King when they announced it over the loudspeakers uh, during class. And many classrooms broke out in applause. And some students heard that and they were mortified by it. And it sprung them into action. It stirred them to say, you know what? This is wrong. We got to do something. And that started an underground paper called Alice, which was a terrific paper. And it lasted for a couple of years, uh, literally. And it all came from the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. So Everybody had their own reasons for starting up their paper, uh, but uh, it, it was the, the new left movement was about we got to do whatever it takes. And if it takes violence, you know, the weathermen set off many bombs. They set off a bomb in the Capitol building. They set off one in the Pentagon. They set, they set off bombs all over Washington. And you look back on it, and you think they did, you know, because nobody talks about it now. It, it wasn't it wasn't I don't know if it wasn't covered as much or, or what. But we have to realize it's we've been here before and it was possibly worse at that point. It may get worse in 2022, 2023. I don't know. But it was worse back in the 60s uh, than it is right now. I, I firmly believe the divisions. I mean, there's always been this craving for just an independent source and wanting to. I think it, honestly, I think it started when the Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, if you look at that time, you look at RFK's assassination, you look at MLK's assassination. It's not a coincidence that every expert I talk to on the JFK assassination also studies MLK and also studies RFK. I mean, whether you believe that there's conspiracy or not, it's just the public didn't know what the hell was going on. When JFK was assassinated, the killer of the president got killed by a strip club owner. And you're just like, what? And there's just 
you had people that were already kind of like, okay, I'm confused. And then going into RFK's assassination, MLK's assassination, people were just like, what the hell is going on? We need to do something. And then you see this rise of people trying to speak out and, you know, people decided to be heard to make a lot of noise and they did get attention. They did get changed, but I think we still have it here today. I think there's many independent sources out there. Obviously you can take your pick on the massive amount there is out there. And, you know, you mentioned about like the Jan six thing. I, I don't, like I said, I'm not into politics. I'm not left or right at all. I think that it, with corruption, you got to acknowledge it where it is. And you just have people that are confused. People feel like they're being lied to. There's like, you're, it's like Nixon during paranoia stage when he, in his presidency, you know, nobody knows what's real anymore. And it becomes a difficult situation, but there's just been this massive amount of wanting to do something, which I mean, is kind of inspiring. Hopefully it's done in the best of ways as well, too. Well, back in the sixties, remember, you know, this was pre-internet. So all people had really was media. And they saw media and with improvements in printing, improvements in typesetting, uh, improvements just in, in photostatting imagery, uh, and the ease of publication really came into its own in the late 60s. And so these things, people saw these new innovations in printing is a way to use the media to get their point out. You know, now, you know, with the internet and online, everything, everything's there. But back then it was, it was using the media and print media in particular. Uh, was was the way people were using to get this point out. And yes, you know, we MLK, JFK, RFK, we had these assassinations. Then we had a lull, 65, 66, and then 67. That's when people started saying enough is enough. It's time that we use the media. We use these improvements in printing uh, to get a, the word out of what we want. It's time for us to get our words out and stop listening to what the mainstream is spoon feeding us. And then boom, from 67 up into the early 70s, uh, this explosion in media uh, precipitated and helped people get that, that word out that they wanted. Those, uh, those images, uh, you know, photographs from Vietnam, these things that maybe mainstream pictures weren't publishing, these underground alternative publishers were. And so this was shocking people into looking at life in a different way. Uh, maybe what the mainstream press and main, mainstream press and what Nixon is feeding us is not right. Uh, maybe there is something else to it. And I think the press was very successful that way in getting that word out and that other that other side out. You said looking at life a different way. I I, I'm, I know you were talking about like life, just life in general. But then I look at like Life magazine, like looking at that magazine a little bit differently. I saw a news publication with them and it was RFK laying on the ground. And what they did was they took out the tie that he had that was laying in the bottom left. They cropped that out and it, it just it's gone. I don't know what they did with it, but it was a clip on tie. And it was just like, all right, you're not supposed to manipulate news photos or press photos. That's a strict rule in the press. But Life Magazine did it on their front issue when RFK died. It has the little waiter that was holding RFK. Yep. Yep, they sure did. So what do you what do you believe? Who do you believe? One other thing, too, I, I can't No discussion without the underground press and can go without talking about the Liberation News Service. Uh, the Liberation News Service was like the AP of the underground press. It was a group of people working in D.C., uh, later in New York City. Uh, they split, of course. Everybody always split. Nobody got along for any long period of time. But the Liberation News Service would put together packets of articles uh, that they had gleaned from underground papers all over the state. They put them together in packets, and they mailed them to other underground papers so they ha would have filler stories, quote, unquote. Some of these stories are really good. There's stories about Vietnam. There's stories about 
uh, you know, the, the grapes, the grape uh, pickers in California, uh, stories about all these social issues that were going on at the time that other underground papers may not have any access to. But the Liberation News Service articles, they could get these articles and they could paste them up into their pages and, and use them to fill out their magazine. Uh, I, I interviewed a woman, uh, Katya Sabroff Taylor, who was uh, one of the members of the Liberation. Uh, she worked for the Liberation News Service, and she was such a fast typist that Abby Hoffman asked her if she would consider being his personal secretary, and she turned him down because she thought he was kind of a sleazeball. <laughs> but um, she, she, uh, she, it turns out, Katya, believe it or not, uh, when her, her name, she was working under a different name. She was in Richmond in 1968, and she was the editor of a paper called the Richmond Chronicle. And I found out quite accidentally that she was the first female underground newspaper editor in America. Because, you know, the underground press was quite sexist. Uh, they mostly relegated women to typist and uh, other menial tasks around the office. And women revolted. Look what happened at the Rat newspaper up in New York. The women revolted. They, they kicked all the men out and they published the paper themselves. Uh, so it, the New Left movement was not correct, you know, in all manners uh, of speaking. They were still quite misogynistic and quite sexist in a lot of ways. Um, but for, for Katya Taylor, for her to be um, a newspaper editor in 1968 was, was unheard of. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a flawed movement for sure. Uh, they, they weren't doing everything right. They were, they were messing some things up too. And they ultimately wound up shooting themselves in the foot uh, with their insistence on focusing on Vietnam and only Vietnam, uh, which led to their demise at the end of the draft and at the pullout. So uh, it was definitely a, a flawed movement, but I think it had a, it resonated. It, it had an enormous impact. Uh, the impact of the media cannot be overstated. It, uh, it, it's, they were just, they had a huge impact, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, which carried over into the mainstream sometimes, I think. Well, Dale, I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. I, I do. This is very informative. I'm probably going to have some questions I'll email you uh, about just so I can find some of these great articles as well, too. But is there a place where people can find your links and all your books as well, too? Yes, they can go to my website, dalebrumfield.net. Uh, they can, uh, I've got links to, uh, I've got many links on there to my books and to uh, some other areas as well. Um, and uh, check if you just do a search for voices of the underground uh that would be a good place to find the um digital archive of the underground press and also one good thing about the underground press uh they made microfilms of all of their papers as they were publishing uh tom forcade at the underground press syndicate uh started making microfilm copies of all the papers as he received them and some colleges have these microfilms. I know the University of Virginia has them, uh, over 600 reels of, uh, of underground papers from all over the world. Uh, so that is a resource definitely worth checking out if you don't mind scrolling through microfilm. Uh, really good, really good way to see what was going on. Find articles that you just wouldn't find anywhere else. I'm going to have to check that out, but I appreciate the time you gave me to do the show. I'm going to link all your links in the description. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the